Amen. You can have a seat right there where you're at. Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, my name is Daniel. I get the opportunity of serving here as lead pastor and to teach God's word this morning. If it's your very first time with us, or if you're a family member or a guest of someone uh, that is a journey regular, uh, we're grateful that you are here with us. And if it's uh, if you're normal here with us, Merry Christmas to you as well. If you have a copy of God's word, meet me in Luke 2. We're going to look at two verses out of Luke 2, Luke 2, 13 and 14. In this season of Advent, of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas in December, we have looked at the Gospel of Luke. Advent, if you're not familiar with it, is simply from a Latin word that means the coming or arrival. And it's times all throughout Christian history where we celebrate the arrival of Christ into the world the first time and longing for his return again. And so this whole Advent season, we've been looking at different characters and individuals in Luke's gospel and how they responded to the very first coming of Christ. In the first week, we looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she had a response of great faith uh, to what the angel told her. The second week, we looked at the traditional character of the innkeeper and how there was this lack of a response response in faith. And then last week we looked at the, the characters of the shepherds and how they sought him. They, uh, they told others about him and how they worshiped in response. And this morning we're going to look at the angels who specifically came to the shepherds there in Luke 2. And the two verses we're going to look at is this, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth among those with whom he is pleased. You know, for me, as I think about these two simple verses, of these angels declaring glory to God, peace on earth among those whom he's pleased, or your translation may say among those whom his favor rests, or something like that. As I think about this Christmas Eve and all the plans and activities that your family like mine uh, most likely has today, tonight, and tomorrow, I think, man, man, there's so many things we could have talked about on Christmas Eve and different individuals we could relate to about the first coming of Christ. Just think about the three we've worked our way up towards of Mary. May we have something in relationship to Mary. We have all these plans for our life and we have all these ideas about what our future would look like, but God just intervenes and man, we could talk about that or the shepherds, how they, had a, they were humble and they were lowly of a state and character posture in their life of how many of us, we've had different seasons that we've walked through where we've been humbled and we could use some more humbling in our lives to focus our attention on who Jesus is and why he came and why it matters. But the angels, like how much do I have in common with an angel and why is this the Christmas Eve text? Well, I believe that how the angels respond teach us about the faithfulness of God that we've already sung about and how it can encounter our lives. But in order to stir up some of our um, creative imagination, I want to read to you a few chapter or paragraphs, not chapters, sorry, we don't have that long, paragraphs of an excerpt of a Christian novel called The Visit by J.B. Phillips. You can find this actually, uh, it's in public domain for free online. It'd be a great Christmas reading tonight as you're sipping some hot cocoa or maybe coffee by the fireplace if you light a fire with it being 70 degrees outside. Uh, that's what we... Only, only day you're going to catch me in a sweater when it's 70 is on Christmas Eve, right? And so, uh, but this is called The Visit by J.B. Phillips, where he looks at a creative take of the Christmas story from the perspective of angels. It goes like this. 
Once upon a time, a very young angel was being showed around the splendors and the glories of the universe by a senior and more experienced angel. And to tell the truth, this little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been showed the whirling galaxies, blazing suns, infinite distance and deathly cold of interstellar space than where his mind, there seemed to be an awful more lot than he could take in. And finally, he was shown the galaxy at which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star that we call our sun and its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a rather small and insignificant sphere. Turning very slowly on its axis, it looked dull and dirty like an overused tennis ball. The little angel whose mind had been filled with the size and splendor of the galaxies that he had seen was confused, puzzled. The senior angel said to him, I want you to watch this one in particularly. The little angel said, it looks small and rather dirty to me. What's so special about this one? The senior angel said, that's the planet visited. Visited, you mean? The senior angel said, indeed, indeed, I do mean. That ball, which no doubt looks small and insignificant in your mind, and perhaps not overly clean, was visited by our young prince of glory. At these words, the young angel bowed his head in reverence. But how? The little angel exclaimed. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince with all the splendors of his creation and millions more that I most likely have not yet been able to see went down in person to this fifth-rate dirty tennis ball? Why would he do a thing like that? The senior angel said, it isn't for us to question his why, except I must point out that to you, he isn't impressed by size and numbers as you seem to be. But what he really did do is what I know, and all of heaven with me, that he went down as one of them. How else do you suppose that he could visit them? The little angel at this began to wrinkle his face in utter disgust. Do you mean to tell me he stooped so low as to become one of those creepy crawly creatures that are on that floating ball? The senior angel said, I do. And I don't think that he would enjoy you calling them creepy crawly little creatures in that tone of voice. For as strange as it may seem to you and I, he loves them. So he went down to visit them in order to lift them up to become like him. You see, in this creative take by J.B. Phillips in The Visit, he explained this encounter with these two angels. One that was an utter disgust of how could the prince of glory step out of heaven in all of its splendors and visit the earth. But you see, the way that these two angels encounter this visit is not how we see exactly the millions of angels worshiping in the actual scriptures. Because what you see is one angel coming to these shepherds and telling them about the visit, if you will. And then all of a sudden, Luke says, in a, in a burst of light, the, the glory of the sky, the, the sky is filled with glory. And then millions upon millions of angels are surrounded in the night sky, worshiping. It says, praising God and saying this phrase, glory to God in the highest. 
I want to camp out in this one simple verse in Luke 2.14 and unpack it and see how the angel's response to the visit of the young prince of glory, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, came in to take on flesh to become one of us in order to make a way to be in right standing with God the Father changes everything. They respond like this, glory to God in the highest. The angels worship. Their response in the coming of Jesus to the earth is to worship. They've been privy to things that we haven't been privy to. They have the perspective of heaven. And their response to Jesus coming to the earth is to worship. They say glory to God in the highest. They've been in the highest. And their statement of just saying glory to God is saying that his name gets honor, credit, and virtue. Everything that has taken place, he gets the worship for it. As Isaiah would say, long before Christ would actually come to this earth and the angels would celebrate, he would prophesy about who this individual would be. We've sang these names before, but in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, it says this. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, we isolated on Christmas of all these other phrases around these verses, but look at the very last phrase in verse seven, that the zeal or the passion of the Lord of angel armies will accomplish what he says. That God is always faithful to his word. The message of Christmas is God always keeps his promises. Despite what your current circumstances may unfold or may have despite how you may feel in your current circumstances, God always keeps his word. And the angels at the coming of Jesus, the very first time, proclaim honor and credit to God's name. They move on to the next phrase in verse 14. It says, and on earth, peace. You see, for many of us, this is such a beautiful saying of Christmas. This is such the Hallmark Christmas, yeah, peace on earth. You know, it's the Charlie Brown Christmas special in our mind of just the, the sweet kids singing the Christmas songs and it's all holly jolly and beautiful in our hearts and tomorrow morning is gonna be amazing and, and peace-filled, but many of us in our live situation right now, it doesn't look a lot like peace. That if we were going to define what my life feels like right now in this moment, it may not be peace. And for many of us, it's because we have a a wrong definition or even outlook on what that word means. You see, in English, the word peace means simply the absence of conflict. And we desire that in our life. But that's cheap peace. That's circumstantial peace. That's peace that shifts and changes based on the weather. But the biblical word of peace does does not mean the absence of conflict. It literally means complete or whole. 
Because biblical peace isn't the absence of conflict, but it's actually the presence of something far greater. And Jesus has prophesied that his name would be Prince of Peace. When the angels come, he says, peace on earth as it is in heaven. Like it was in the glories and splendors of heaven, it is now arrived here on earth. Because peace himself has arrived. Which is why Paul would say in Ephesians, he himself is our peace. You see, the reality though, that much like maybe your life in this current moment, is when the shepherds are hearing these words, they are experiencing what your gut and maybe insides is feeling when you think, oh, holly jolly, yeah, peace. Yeah, right. Because the the time period at which Jesus entered on this earth was known as the longest stretch of world history without a significant world war. It's known as the Pax Romana. And it was Rome conquered much of the known world at the time and, and they accomplished it, this worldwide global peace, if you will, by entering into a city, entering into a village, entering into a country and saying, bow the knee to Rome or else. So Caesar Augustus, Luke 2, 1, we know he's on the throne at the time as the emperor. He has accomplished this world domination of peace by wielding the largest, bloodiest sword. He's not accomplished peace by saying, oh, we can make this all good. Let's make these alliances together. No, he's putting fear and trembling over individuals and saying, if you don't face a bloody sword. You know, we romanticize the Christmas story so much that even when Mary and Joseph are going to pay taxes, it's probably this just humble, like little thing. They go up to this little booth. They don't have email or phone call. Like if they don't pay their taxes, the IRS isn't just sending them a quick email and saying, hey, you better do this. It's kind of past due a couple days. No, most Roman historians record what tax season was like for them as they would enter in this large room and there were these tables set up and it was almost like interrogations. Brutal, ungodly, ostracizing, just beating individuals to get the most money they could out of them. And to this, Jesus shows up and the angels proclaim, peace on earth. This doesn't seem very peace-filled. This doesn't seem like the beautiful Christmas story we've painted in our mind. But why is this what Jesus says his name means and what Jesus says he is coming to bring? In fact, he contrasts his peace with the world's peace. In John 14, 27, before Jesus would leave the earth, he told his disciples, my peace I give to you and I do not give as the world gives. What has Jesus come to offer us? Not circumstantial peace, not it will change as the season, not it will change as the weather changes, but lasting, everlasting peace. Peace with God, peace that transcends any moment, transcends any feeling, peace that is not only just with inside of us, but carries us into the next life. This is the phrase that we're going to anchor in on. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you read this in a variety of translations, 
you will get these different phrases at the end. Uh, uh, peace on earth and good will towards men. Or peace on earth among those on whom his favor rests. Uh, or goodwill, or a variety of different phrases. All of which, which in English, feel like, to me at least, that it's dependent upon me to be good enough to have his favor rest upon me. At first glance, at least. It seems like if I'm good enough, I get this peace that which exists in heaven and has now came to earth. Because maybe for you, you're like me, when you, you read this, so it's like, well, maybe the reason I'm not experiencing this kind of peace in my life, Daniel, is because I don't get this because I haven't achieved it yet. Because on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased, maybe he's just not pleased with me yet. And there's more still that I have to do. Well, if we were reading it like that, we would be reading this text incorrectly because this is literally a phrase in Hebrew that has been transliterated into Greek and now for us into English that is all about God's grace. Because this phrase literally means God's favor bestowed on his people. And how does God accomplish the Christmas story? Isaiah 9, 7, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus has come to be with us. The angels rejoice because they know where the story is headed. They've been there since the very beginning. The light has now pierced into the darkness, as John says. You see, the angels celebrate because they know what's ahead. They know who this young prince of glory is, that he has finally came, that what all of creation has longed for has finally arrived Peace on earth is his come. His name is peace. He is bringing peace and he brings it unto you because of his goodness and his grace. Nothing to earn, nothing to achieve. He accomplished it. So if you desire some of this peace from his perfect deity, his perfect being, his perfect living, his sacrificial death, it's available to us. And we celebrate this Advent season because the true light has arrived. As John writes in his gospel in John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's what Advent is all about because God is bestowing his favor on his people through his son. And we try to put ourselves in the position of the very first followers of Jesus who were longing for his arrival. Many Christian traditions practice the, the Advent wreath and candles for hundreds of years, but it may be foreign to many of us. But it, it's this way where we try to physically put ourselves in the situation of what the people before Jesus were feeling. Because your first Sunday of Advent, the very first Sunday in December, there's just simply one candle that's lit. See, it's this candle right here that's been burnt a little longer than the others. It's just one candle. It's to talk about the light, as in John chapter one, that Jesus is called the eternal, everlasting light that was with the Father in the beginning, and now he is piercing the darkness by entering the world. But on the first Sunday of Advent, the candle of hope, or the prophet's candle, is the sole candle that has been lit because there is 
a little bit of hope because we know as God's people, God keeps his promises. So if you're feeling right now that this peace that I'm talking about is like, yeah, it seems a little far-fetched that we try to put ourselves in their shoes because we know God keeps his promises. One candle alone is lit, but we know there's still hope because prophets of long ago have talked about the one who is coming into the world. The second Sunday of Advent, we not light what one, but two candles, the hope candle and the peace candle or the Bethlehem candle. Two candles are now lit the second Sunday of Advent where not only do we have the hope from the prophets, but we have peace that says from the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, from you will come a ruler who will finally rule with justice and a right-weighted scales that will not look at the outward appearance of an individual, but at their heart and intentions. Two lights are now brighter because it's the second Sunday. The third Sunday of Advent, we not light the hope candle and the prophet's candle the peace candle or the Bethlehem candle, and now the joy candle or the shepherd's candle. Three candles are now lit the fourth Sunday or the third Sunday of Advent because we're getting closer and closer to the arrival and we remember the joy from the shepherds as they proclaimed, they sought him out, they found him, they worshiped him and they told everyone because they said, finally, the one all of creation who's been longing for, he has arrived. And this Sunday, this happens to be Christmas Eve, is the angel's candle or the candle which is love. Four candles now burning brightly because the one has came. He has pierced the darkness. And traditionally on Christmas Eve, which happens to also be this Sunday, you would light the center candle or the Christ candle. Because at the Christ candle, all other candles are positioned around it. It's in the center. It's the center of the story of history. It's the center of the story of the scriptures. The Christ candle sits in the center and all other candles have been waiting for this one to be lit. The true light is coming into the world. As you look at your life and you look at this Christmas, what have you been longing for? What have you been waiting for? Because there's this offer of peace that surpasses everything else, that surpasses our circumstances, that he brings wholeness or completeness into our lives because we begin to see things in the true picture. One candle sitting alone lit makes Little sense, but now five candles burning brightly completes the picture because he has come. He has arrived. The question for you, if you're a follower of Jesus is, says he has, has he resided in proper placement in your life? Hope, peace, joy, love, attributes of Advent, but attributes of your life. And no matter your circumstances in this moment, you can have complete confidence that your Savior keeps his word. 
no matter your circumstances, wholeness, completeness, one day he is making all things new. Advent is not this fairy tale lie that we believe that everything is right right now, but it's this longing forwards because we know that our God keeps his word and one day everything will be made right and the process has begun because he came the first time. Others of you have never made Jesus the leader of your life and forgiver of your sins. Today can be that day as you assess the landscape of your life. The question is, is is Christ sitting at the center? The center of your life, the center of your story. Is he at the center? Is he the true light? Does he bring peace or wholeness to you because of his coming, because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, where he stepped into your place, which is where Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace in context of reconciling us and making in right relationship with God the Father. He is our peace. Two questions and then we're gonna sing and I'm gonna be done. The first question is, is have you made that decision to make Jesus in the center of your life? If you have not made that decision, my challenge for you is there's gonna be people with orange name tags floating around at the welcome desk in the back after the service. I'd love for you to grab somebody's hand and myself or someone else just to, hey, I I need to know about what it means to make Jesus the center. We'd love to do that for you and help you be introduced to a savior who can bring wholeness, completeness to your life and a promise for hope in a future. Second question. If you have made Jesus the center, y'all got these little candles when we came in. You see what's beautiful about John chapter one. Is the story doesn't just stop with Jesus coming into the world. The rest of the gospel is about how John the Baptist not only knew about the light. Get your candle ready down here. But he shared it. He said he wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light and to share it with someone else. So as this room begins to be candle lit, the last question is this, who are you sharing the light with? The light has come. He has entered into the world. Have you put him at the center? If so, Who are you sharing him with? Jesus, as we light these candles, may it be a reminder of us that you came into the world as one of us because you loved us. May we remember what Christmas is all about. The true light has come.